Thank you for joining us today. This is Sammy, the Life Technician. Um, really excited today. Uh, I think the topic today is going to have uh, a lot of substance. Um, part of the goal of what we're here to talk about today is talk about what it's like living with dual diagnosis from my perspective and then also combining that with also living with a traumatic life experience as well. Um, this is kind of groundbreaking for us and I think it's only appropriate. Uh, I'm going to have my first guest on our um, podcast today um, and we're going to be joined today by Chris M. Uh, I met Chris uh, a number of years ago um, and uh, we've helped each other out in different ways over the course of our uh, friendship and um, Chris was actually one of the first or the first person that I talked to about Formers Anonymous, that 12-step group. Uh, for men and women addicted to street life uh, and it's in a direct response we created FA in a direct response to the needs that people coming out of street life or long history of criminal lifestyles really didn't have a, a landing pad anywhere other than in the traditional 12-step setting that really was about substance use and so we um, put together something to help uh, give a place for for men and women trying to exit street life and violence and crime and also a place to talk about the effects of long-term incarceration and and the effects of street violence uh, and and all those things that it brings to us um, our guest today Chris um, in 2010 uh, was dual diagnosed with a schizoaffective disorder I'm gonna let Chris talk about that um, uh, in a minute here and uh, he was also given the diagnosis of alcohol dependency um, and as we move through this discussion I want to talk about um, in part what happens when we're given diagnoses um, in particular before or without the whole story being taken into account uh, about what's happening for example in the domestic violence world part of what we learn um, while doing batterers train treatment training is that oftentimes uh, a woman's symptoms of abuse from long-term domestic violence are often confused with um, depression or being bipolar and are often found by the courts across the country as unfit mothers because we have yet to know or we have yet to prioritize taking into account um, like I said the whole picture uh, about what's affecting a person and its root causes as opposed to uh, just thinking that we've narrowed it down uh, to what's in the book uh, and know enough to make a, a diagnosis. So um, again, I'm excited to bring Chris. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. appreciate you. Uh, if, if you. If you get to know Chris, you'll... <laughs> You'll see that Chris is uh, about seven foot tall, um, ball headed, and he's pretty much tattooed from his chin down. I don't know how far down those tattoos go, but I got a couple of them. Yeah, he's, he's pretty, uh, pretty tatted, um, but he's also a well-spoken, very respectful guy, um, quiet uh, for the most part. Um, and once you have his friendship, you're kind of in. Um, and what I know about Chris is if you don't have his friendship, just kind of stay out of his way because he's probably not going to have too much to say to you. Um, but he means no harm, to be honest with right, you. Right. Um, so we're going to hear about Chris's story uh, a little bit today. We're going to cover that. And then we're going to talk about um, 
what what's going on in today's life. So why don't we go ahead and get started? So, Chris, we've spent some time getting to know each other over over the last few years, man. And oh yeah, um, we share a lot in common with our our family experience and what that upbringing was like. Um, can you tell us a little about what it was like growing up in your world? What what was childhood like for you? Well, you know, it's crazy. I, I mean, even my uh, childhood, I guess you would say, was a dual diagnosis uh, in a sense because um, it, you, it was almost like a polarization, like a, a magnet, you know, uh, one side uh, going to the other. For example, you know, my mother's side of the family, uh, I guess if I could give in a, a tangible example for be like a soul food, you know, I mean, um, everything was an event, you know, every birthday, every holiday, um, every all the family had to go. Uh, my mother's side of family all lived in a in a small radius of one another. Um, so like a tight knit family. Very tight knit. I mean, that's to say the least. I mean, to the point they they were you couldn't be mad at each other. You know, if someone was mad at each other, the whole family had to get involved to squash this situation. Intervention. Yeah, like intervention. Sure. You know, um, you know, but but in a. <laughs> You know, in a in a in a very uh, um, subtle way, you know. But then you had the other side of the spectrum um, on my uh, dad's side of the family, and that's this is not to you know try to put my dad's side of the family on blast sure. or anything like that. But you know, there's reality and bullshit, right? Well, you know, my dad's side of the family was just dysfunctional, man. I mean, dysfunctional, like you know, everybody moved to different parts of of, of the country. Um, you know, a lot of uh, 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 of uh, hatred, you know, and and disgruntlement in regards to uh, past treatment, you know. Uh, towards each other? Towards each other. Um, in the family, you know, things that my grandmother did, things that my grandfather did. Um, you know, my dad had a lot of issues. I love my dad to death. You know, we've came uh, leaps and bounds in regards to our relationship. But, um, you know, my, my dad coming up, he was a nut, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was a nut. He had had some issues. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, it's, it was always, like I say, that dual diagnosis, you know, that kind of pulling from one side to the other. And then you're stuck in the middle and you really don't know. Everything seems normal on both sides. That was the problem. The craziness on my father's side of the family, it seemed normal because you're a kid and you think that's mm -hmm. normal. And then you have the other side of family that was the complete opposite. You think is normal, so you're stuck in the middle with an abnormal uh, viewpoint of, of of what you of what family life should be. Sure, from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Sides. One side is almost like too perfect, and the other side is like totally just broken in a sense. Yeah, in a sense, yeah. And and as a child, can you wrap your head around just? trying to make sense of two completely different worlds that are both your realities. Yeah, and the worst part is I don't think you, as a child, you cognizantly try to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. You're just living. You're a kid. You yeah. know, it doesn't really affect you till later when you can process this and say, man, this is just, this is wacky. It's like a bizarro world. You know, you had one side and the other side was the bizarro world, you know. Yeah. So, I, I just because I know a little bit about your, your background, I know that early on, um, the, some of the mental health stuff that you've been living with throughout the course of your life also affected you as a child. Um, so maybe tell us a little about, about the diagnosis schizoaffective disorder and um, how you kind of remember living with that as a young, as a young kid. Okay. Um, so what is schizoaffective disorder? Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good place to start because um, 
I, I, I would almost guesstimate that a lot of the listeners don't even uh, have never even heard of schizoaffective disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly didn't until I was diagnosed. Um, and schizoaffective disorder itself is a d- dual diagnosis um, because uh, sufferers exhibit uh, both the symptoms of schizophrenia and bipolar uh, disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about it is uh, less than 0.3% of the entire population are given this diagnosis. So, you know, if people out there haven't heard of it, you know, it, it's fair that you did that you never have. Mm-hmm. Um, chronic symptoms generally uh, comprise of uh, hallucinations. You know, you're seeing and hearing shit that ain't there. Uh, delusions, paranoia, hypervigilance, um, digressive thinking, you know, kind of veering off onto one topic or talking point. Sammy uh, <laughs> will probably have the real me in because I can get off on, a, on, on rants really I'm quick. I'm ready. I'm um, ready. You know, depression, isolation, procrastination, loss of interest, sure. all that shit, you know, all wrapped up into one. Um, and of course, you have manic behavior. Uh, irresponsible decision making, uh, sometimes violent thoughts and behavior, self-destructive behavior. So, uh, and in my case, uh, unbridled sarcasm and an extremely morbid sense of humor uh, goes along with that. So, um, that's basically what what that is. And you know, to be honest, and not not making light of the situation, I think we've described a lot of people that me and you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, many, in many ways, for sure. Um, so, what was? How did you know? Or tell me what you remember about a child being a child and living with some of those symptoms when when did how old were you when you first kind of remember living with symptoms like that uh the thing is i don't ever remember not living with um degrees and i think increasing degrees mm-hmm. of the symptoms as even as a kid at school um i can remember never trusting other kids um i never could really get into the the cool group you know mm-hmm. what i mean um because i i just had too many issues you know what i mean um i I, even as a child i got irritated with people really really quickly and you know not for any apparent reason i just never could make those those bonds you know what i mean so i was always kind of the outsider i had friends don't get me wrong Mm -hmm. um but uh i was always an outsider and, and sometimes even ostracized because as kids and unfortunately even as adults um uh People don't take the time to re- to dive into what's wrong with a person or why they act the way they act. So I think a lot of kids were just like, you know what, Chris is Chris is weird and he can sure. be an asshole sometimes too, you know. Yeah, not just kids. Sometimes the adults in our lives, many times the adults in our lives don't bother to dig into what's going on with us. I know you had mentioned uh, when we were talking um, offline that even at that early elementary school age, you were also very mistrusting. You were kind of uh, wary of people already at this point. Oh, yeah. Okay. So then um, you become uh, a teenager, you know, and uh, what's going on between, you know, elementary school age, you know, what's affecting you, what what kind of things stand out to you? I, I really like you to talk a little about that experience, about uh, the the experience you had when you were looking out back uh, on your dad's apartment. Oh, yeah, or yeah. House and mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, you know, my dad lived right uh, on the uh, right, right below uh, a train line, a, a, a train, a rail line. Uh, Sammy knows this area because you know mm-hmm. we both from around the same place. Um, you had uh, ho- the low-income housing projects up on the top of the hill, and then right when you then you had the, the train line separating, and then his house was on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And he, he had a large amount of property, and he had a junkyard. He was a mechanic, um, and he had a junkyard. So uh, we had a lot of junkyard dogs, 
and he would send me uh we'd use the old that was back when they had the big steel uh hubcaps you know yeah. and we'd fill them with with like the dog food and then we take uh you know those five gallon paint buckets and fill them with water and you know we distribute them to the dogs mm-hmm. um hell the dogs probably had ptsd <laughs> um so so um so we take that so we take the so i was i was going that was one of my little um objectives you know and uh, i was carrying this this five gallon bucket you can imagine you know a little kid i've got like both hands and i'm kind of water's going everywhere and i'm wilding trying to get back here to the back of the yard um and there was an individual um who had a dog uh, uh i won't name his name but mm-hmm. he was a vietnam vet um you know he knew my dad he'd always come down and my dad he had a dog my dad would always send me up there with a uh, uh you know some oats for the dog and then a, a can of, of beer of Michelob for um, him. Mm-hmm. So I, I immediately uh, recognized him. As a kid, you're not really thinking anything of it. Um, the dog starts going crazy. So um, it kind of drew my attention. And uh, one of the, the uh, locomotives was coming down the track. Um, and when it got, you know, closer, uh, this individual laid down on the train tracks and the dog is going back and forth going crazy so now i'm looking at the dog going crazy naturally our dogs start going crazy so this guy's dog's going crazy on the tracks, on the tracks and then your dogs are your going, yard are going, going crazy looking out you know because okay. you know whatever dog communication yeah. they had the dog's probably like like what the fuck you know right, what i mean right, right. so um uh of course you know i think we all can ascertain what he was trying to do um uh, the train uh, got close enough the dog wouldn't get off the tracks. I mean, that loyalty, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, the train ended up, of course, killing the dog, killing him. Um, and as a kid, I remember, I, the little things you remember, you know, um, right before the train, the locomotive actually hit the dog, um, just that natural flinching um, intuition, you know, I tried to turn away. Mm-hmm. But the sound of the dog getting hit that, you know, that's that blood curdling skrill, you know, mm-hmm. you, you turn back around. Um, and by that time, it was like perfect timing. I turned back around and the, the train's running over this dude, you know what I mean? So um, and I, I don't so much remember the visuals of him getting, uh, you know, Good. chopped up, but mm-hmm. I, I always remember the sound of of that brief like squ- you know squeal of of uh of pain sure so and how old were you when this happened chris i was a, i was a little tight man i couldn't have been more than eight nine so and um who who helped you process that uh, you know what was the how did you heal from that what was the process that you went through after seeing something like that nobody helped me process it you know what i mean nobody um he didn't deal with it wow you know, and I mean, and, and even that sound, even now as an adult, looking back and I say, well, don't you at least take a kid to the side and say everything would be all right? My mother may have, um, but the thing is, it was almost like when we talk about those two worlds, um, it's like Vegas, dude. What happens at my dad stays at my dad's, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so wow. That wasn't an issue. I mean, and that was just one of uh, hordes of shit that happened sure. down there, you know. Well, I think it's a good a, a good window into what we're talking about when we talk about also living with traumatic life experiences and just the impact of a traumatic experience like that alone 
much less the other things that we're also including. Right, right. So then from there, you, you, you get a little older. Um, what's it like now that you're a teenager, you know, turning into a young adult? Um, what does your life look like? Well, I, uh, I think that the confusion kind of hit me because, I mean, I jumped from, like, when, you, when you're in the condition that I was in and you really weren't uh, part of any kind of crowd for any time, you're trying to find yourself. You don't understand what's going on, so you're trying to, excuse me, you're trying to find the, um, some sense of normalcy or acceptance in all kinds of different groups, but you don't realize at the time that the reason you're not finding that acceptance is because of you, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I jumped from everything, from skateboarding to to uh, punk rock for a while, to house, you know, being the house boy, you know, um, this area, anybody from our area knows house music, music well. Yeah. So... I mean, you name it, I jumped to it, you know, did the, you know, I, I did ROTC for all my years. And Were you a big kid too? Like, were you like bigger than most kids? No, kids? no, no, no. Like a big guy. No, I, I had a growth spurt. Oh, okay. So I wasn't always the big kid. Okay. Um, uh, got bullied because of, all, you know, this, you get bullied, mm-hmm. you know, anytime you're kind of out, odd person out, you get bullied. And that, that sparked a lot of stuff later, you know, bullying people take bullying in different types of, of fashions. Some people get bullied and they never come out of that you see a lot of suicides from bullying especially nowadays mm-hmm. and then other people that turns to aggression later and that's what happened to me but during back you know to that time period um finally like gang culture you know where we're from is always around you it doesn't matter what you get into you know i don't care what you get into you're you know um you're gonna know gangs and, and mm-hmm. drugs and criminality is is in that is in those air, urban areas so just because I started trying to jump to these different things, I knew um, gang culture well. I had friends that were in gangs. Even as a child, we talk about our childhood. Um, There's a lot of uh, gang members that were down on my dad's, and I remember a, a particular one um, uh, was down there. And, and when I'd come home from school, he'd be passing me gang lit. You know what I mean? Not, oh, wow. This is your homework. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know? So, so I knew all that coming up. Um, so eventually, when all this failed... Um, I guess I found my niche and acceptance um, running around with gangbangers. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and uh, you know, if you're comfortable answering this, you know, was your father, you know, a, a gang member? Was he a criminal figure? Yeah, or? yeah. My, my dad, I wouldn't say a criminal figure because that my my dad, my grandfather, and all of them, they were military. So, uh, okay. um, but, um, but growing up in the urban environment cities that they did, because that side of family were all from big cities, um, yeah, he was in it. He joined up. He joined a gang um, in Chicago. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. knows we're from Chicago. So mm-hmm. um, he joined it. He joined a gang in Chicago. Um, that that, you know, I, I couldn't I won't, won't say like he was a figure. He wasn't like a leader or nothing like sure. that. He, he just was a youth and he got into that, um, got in some trouble. So he had those connections. Those guys would be there. <laughs> you know were, what I mean? Were, I'm just curious, man. Were you in the same gang, a different gang? No, 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 no. Different? Yeah, I was okay. in a different gang. So, right. yeah. You know, because in my case, my son followed right down the same path I did. Same gang, same friends. So that's when he yeah. was asking. Yeah, yeah. So at what point did you start getting in trouble with the law? And what was it for? The first time I, I can I can remember getting in trouble with the law, me and a, another guy went into uh, old uh, Dominic's. I don't know if you, you know, mm-hmm. some people remember the old Dominic's. Mm-hmm. And um, with the A and P little yeah yeah stamps. oh yeah yep yep <laughs> and uh the green book of stamps yep for sure man and uh so we went in there and 
um, when we stole some guns, some cap guns. You know, and those are the ones where you take the paper and you put it in the paper and mm-hmm. pop, pop. Mm-hmm. But um, so we stole some cap guns and and he told on me, you know what oh, I mean? Man. They saw, you know, um, when he came out, he told on me. And uh, and I remember uh, the police came and they weren't going to take us to jail or nothing like that. But they wanted to scare us like a scare straight, mm-hmm. straight, I guess, at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like you're not ever going to go home and all this craziness, yeah. you know. Um, and you know, as a kid, you believe it. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm never going home, yeah, you know. Yeah. And then until my aunt came, and then you know, by the time my mom and them got a hold of me, I, I wish I wouldn't have went home. But, um, but for sure, that was the first time I remember police contact. You know, you always remember police around us, around you. You know, um, and that's also for a lot of us, that's a dual diagnosis too. Uh, you know, our opinions of police because. At that time, you had the officer-friendly program, so you had officers coming in and, and interacting with children at a young um, age, you know, saying, look, you know, police mm-hmm. are here, we're your friends, you can do blah, blah, blah. But then sometimes you would see the other side, the other side of um, people getting arrested and people talking about, the, you know, the police harassment. Brutality. And then as you get older and you start living that life, you experience that police mm-hmm. brutality. You know, I've I've had my ass handed to me by by one time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And not and not because they were just assholes. I was always on some bullshit. Mm-hmm. I would have kicked my ass if I was a police sure. officer. You sure. know what I mean? Um, and uh, and then but you know I, I you know, um, we all know uh, the corrupt cops around um, our neighborhoods. You know, so sure. So that that set in motion. Um, my dealings with police officers and of course you start getting arrested for gang fight um uh you know getting arrested at school for mob actions and shit like that you know and what other problems are if any did you have in high school oh you name it i mean um like i say the only you know my only uh incentive to come to school really was just rotc and art you know what i mean that's the only reason i came um and then but everything else was was just you know, because at that time, you know, that bullying shit was done. You know what I mean? Now, You're starting to fight back. Now I was starting to become the predator instead. Mm. Um, and uh, About how old do you think that shifted for you? How old were you when you started fighting back or becoming the predator? Well, the first time I fought back, um, once again, I was I was a kid. This And I think this was before the transformation took place. But mm. um, we were in class. And back then, um, they let us have exacto knives in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we were doing the thing and there was a particular kid that always would used to mess with me. I mean, like would slap me on the back of the head and all kind of stupidness. And one day we were doing that, um, th- this little project with these X-Acto knives and I just wasn't having it, man. Um, dude, you know, they were over there making fun of me and whatnot. And I just, and I slashed this kid with the X-Acto knife, you know? Wow. What grade about so, were you in? Middle school? No, no, this was... Still elementary? Yeah, this was elementary school. Okay. Um, and uh, then my, you know my mom comes to the school and all that craziness. So, um. so we are talking about dual diagnosis. So on one hand, we we we've got some violence starting to come out, some aggression. You're starting to fight back. You're you're responding to violence being brought upon you. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your high school experience like? Yeah, well, high school experience was you know now you're starting to. Gang, starting to uh you know get into to gangs and and just and hanging out mm-hmm. um how was the how was the the mental health stuff affecting you at this point 
Oh, it was the same. I mean, nothing had ever changed in regards to my paranoia over people or distrust over people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, when I got, and I could say that's when, if anything, the schizo, uh, the schizophrenia aspects of schizoaffective mm-hmm. disorder, I think that's when this took place a lot because not only are uh, are you are you behavioral issues but now you're experimenting with with drugs and alcohol and Mm, things of that nature and um that's when uh uh like hallucinations and voices and stuff started setting in you know what i mean um now i look back and i and i uh realize that it's probably part of this condition Mm -hmm. um because actually at that age is when most males are are kind of uh, diagnosed with this but um i always just thought it was just an inner voice you know uh Telling me to do things because you know you again it was your normal yeah yeah you yeah. know and you know you just think it's just an inner voice talking to you out of you know revenge or whatever because of the mm-hmm. life you're living but then um probably not man it's probably a little more sure. than that at that Absolutely. time yeah um but yeah uh, yeah end of high school high school was difficult because of that you know you be in school and you like I say I got irritated with people really quickly and you're having thoughts of you know most kids want to have fits fights and shit. You know, and that's what they're worried about. And you're thinking, you know, I, I want to kill this person. Sure. You know what I mean? And not, sure. and not just in a, you know, cliche standpoint. You're really right. thinking like, you're if, really if thinking I could, I, I could, I would kill sure. this motherfucker. You know, sure. so, you know. All right. So then um, you become a, you become an adult. What? You know, back in the 90s. Um, what, what happens once you leave high school and enter the adult world? What's, what's your life like now? Well, um, now you're independent. You know, I mean, I, you know, I had ran away from the crib, you know, to go chill with the homies a few times. And, um, now you're, you're, I'm independent, you know what I mean? And so, um, you're just full blown doing whatever you want to do. Um, now you're being held accountable also, um, with, by the legal system, you Mm know? Um, and that, you know, I think that just complicates things even more, but, you know, adulthood, um, is, is difficult dealing with this because now it's not only affect it doesn't just affect personal relationships friendships it's not just affecting uh school because school wasn't an issue i got expelled out of the school system Mm -hmm. but um now it's affecting you trying to keep jobs Mm -hmm. you know what i mean uh now you know and now you you know the little the jobs that i was getting um like i say getting irritated with real people really quick saying things i shouldn't say to people getting violent on jobs you know you're losing you're losing jobs you know and you're losing opportunities so now it's affecting you um, from a responsibility standpoint not just personal bullshit and i know that you've had some uh some incarcerations you know in your past you know how old were you the first time you went to um you got incarcerated for anything as an adult um as an adult um the first time was right away as soon as i i think i was 17 i went to they sent me to a county jail for a couple months for some for mob mob action mm-hmm. um and then uh then it just and i think and this is not just not something um solid you know uh to, for me i mean this kind of goes the same process i think for most of us can tell the same tale that i'm mm-hmm. telling once that first time is done it's just a snowball downhill because you, you know sure. you're not scared at the second time or the third time yeah, now you kind of know yeah. what to expect and can handle it. Exactly, precisely. Right. And then what about, when's the first time you went to prison? Um, the or first, have you been to prison? Yeah, yeah, times? I've been to prison twice. Okay. Um, you know, um, 
first time in the 90s and then the last time was uh, a few years back um, what was your prison experience like what was, what was your first prison experience like well the first prison experience um, you know like I said going to county jail out here you know back then they used to call it Cook County uh, Gladiator School mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know yeah motherfuckers that went to get out of there to go to prison you right. know what I mean yeah. so so I mean you know this um, so you get there, you you have a, a sense of knowing what it is. There's still that culture shock because it is still different. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it it wasn't bad. I wasn't traumatized. Like I say, you know, um, you get in where you fit in, you know. Sure. Um, and then you come out. Um, and, you know, I wish I could say I had a bad prison experience, um, you know. But when you're on that other side of it, what's bad for people who who don't have any connections or, or are being victimized is horrible sure. for you when you're on the other side of it is just what you do, you know, and let's face it in most of the, these, those, uh, circles, you're expected to go to prison or something at some time, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you never go to jail or you never not do nothing, you know, it's interesting you say that because I, I spent a lot of time talking about this expectation, right? And then when you don't live up to this expectation, there's this deep humiliation that's brought upon those people who don't live up to the expectation. And the only way from underneath that hallucination or that humiliation is to become uh, what they expect you to become, which is mm-hmm. a willingness to, uh, to risk it all, no fear, aggression, violence, whatever it takes, right? So, yeah, I think that's a very valid, uh, very valid point. And again, you're talking from your perspective about what your normal is may be unbearable and First has proven to be unbearable for others you know oh, yeah. um, and and we're conditioned to not really even acknowledge the effects that this when we're going through that it's just the effects happen but they go really unmentioned unnoticed and really untreated for a long time and i think that's that's what another talking point that when some people can't understand why the recidivism rate is what it is and how some people can go in and out of jail um especially youngsters that get in, they say, well, why, why didn't that change them? But you got to understand, um, when you're in that type of lifestyle, there's a lot of affirmation mm-hmm. coming, coming your way. You know, when you go to, if a kid goes to prison or even county jail, mm-hmm. they're not, their peer group is not, not saying, don't do this again. You've mm-hmm. got, you can be better than this. Now these kids are in there and they're being affirmed by individuals now they're being getting plugged now they're coming out and now there's somebody sure. now they've been you've been in jail you've been to prison or even when you when you hurt somebody mm-hmm. it's the same affirmation there's not a oh my god why how did you do that you're not part of the, the crew anymore because right. you're just doing too much right. you know you're too out of control there's no sure. no too out of control sure. because there's always somebody worse than you it's like you know it's like I mean? prison is the equivalent for a criminal prison is the equivalent of what college is for uh, you know, a normal so-called kid on the streets, you know, like you, you have an expectation to go to the, one of these two locations mm-hmm. and then to do or participate in certain things. So, yes, it, but it's uh, two, two big extremes. I got to ask you, man, because I, I know that your half of your body is like Midwest tattoos and the other half are like L.A. tattoos. <laughs> like, how did you end up in L.A., man? What, what, what the fuck were you doing up there? Yeah, no, um, you know, I was big into the lowrider culture, you know what I mean? Still am. I'm still a lowrider, lowrider till I die. And, um, and you know, back then, you know, that's what, that was like the Mecca, man. Uh-huh. You're going to, you know, so we'd go out there and we'd party. We'd go out there. At that time, they were having the L.A. Super Shows out at the amphitheater, at, you know, um, 
uh, excuse me, not the amphitheater, I'm thinking about Chicago, um, you know, at, at the Raiders uh, Coliseum, um, amphitheater is here in Chicago, mm -hmm. out there it was the uh, Coliseum, and so that was like your pilgrimage, your Mecca, you go out there, and then, you know, and I had homeboys from out there because, of course, um, you know, the area where we're from is is got a lot of, of diversity, heavily mm -hmm. Latino. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got a lot of people from L.A. and Texas and Arizona and all that. So you meet people. Plus, I have family members out there. Okay. Like I say, that side of the family um, all spread out everywhere. Getting and, away. and you made your way to correctional system in California. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yep. What was that experience like? Different. It was a totally different experience <laughs> than Illinois, I tell you that. I wish you guys could have seen the look on his face when he said different. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was different, man. You know, um, uh, it, it's not the same. Uh, I'm not, you know, in, in the aspects, it's not, I, you, you don't, I won't say um, worse because a lot of people dread the Illinois mm -hmm. correctional um, <laughs> system. But, um, but yeah, out there, it was, it was different, especially being not from there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I'm glad that was a very short, <laughs> very short experience. So, tell us a little bit about the last time you went to prison, Chris. Um, yeah, the last time, it, in just keeping on that, you know, that was different. Not because, um, mainly because it had been such a long period of time since I'd been in trouble. Okay. You know what I mean? How old were you? I had... I would have been what? Man, you're throwing these questions at me. Now I got to do math and shit. In your 50s, 60s? Yeah, yeah. In my other, in my Benjamin Button days. Um, no, no. This was, this was what, 2012? Okay. So, you know, I don't want, without giving out my age. Um, in your late 30s? Th this was, uh, yeah, this this was my late late 30s, you know, okay. and um, a few years back from now. So. Yeah, yeah. And what was that? What was that like? What happened? Um, what was um, your last, why the, was your the, last experience? The, the, the experience of prison wasn't um, different because it wasn't new. Mm -hmm. And this environment that I was in was a lot more docile than some of the other experiences sure, sure. that I'd have. But um, so it wasn't that. It was that I hadn't been when you haven't been in trouble for so long and you've made a lot of and I had you know made a lot of uh, strides in. Um, being a responsible adult, you know, mm -hmm. I matured. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the best way we can put it. Mm -hmm. And now you find yourself back in that predicament um, by my own irresponsible decision making. Um, you start looking at things from a different point of view. You know, you're looking at uh, some of the knuckleheads, and there's no disrespect to the to the guys that are in there because they're going through their own struggles, and mm -hmm. you know. But um, you're looking at some of these guys that just, that in your opinion, now just don't get it. And you're like, this was me? This was the mentality that I used to have? Sure. And now, you know, it's like, that was my biggest irritation for being in prison. It wasn't, the pr it wasn't prison itself. It was just looking at these attitudes that I despised now. Tell us a little about, if you're comfortable with it, why did you go back to prison? <clears throat> um, went back to prison um, for alcohol-related and uh, weapons-related charges. So, on one hand... Um the alcohol dependency issue is setting in and um, got obviously weapons, so that's still street life. And yet on, on the third hand, I guess we're just going to add hands here. You're saying you've also been trying to make strides yeah. to correct some of these things. And so there, I think it's, it's, uh, it's important to understand. And I, I want my listeners to hear this. Sometimes we might guess that a, a person who's saying they're trying to change, but then goes back to prison 
well, they must have been on some bullshit or they must have, you know, been been a master manipulator. But to be honest, what I've learned about uh, in my profession and personal life is that changing people may want to change and be very sincere about that and put their best foot forward. But actually completing the change process can be next to impossible. It's one thing to want to change and to try to change and to actually know how to change and then to actually change. Yeah. And so um, me knowing you, I know how hard you were working at change at that period of your life. And I also remember how disappointed you were about how things unfolded for you. And you could clearly see yourself kicking yourself in the ass for some of the decisions you made. Right. Um, so it's, I think it's, we don't need to jump to conclusions and judge somebody when they say they failed at change when all the research and science shows that more than 80% of all goals set fail. Yeah, absolutely. You know? and, and we're talking about dieting, you know, that mm-hmm. people can't even diet, you know. And, and what we're talking about is a, a major life overhaul of all the significant parts in your mind and your heart and in your world. Like it's, it, of and course it took a long time to become the people we were adversely. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And, and, and let me make something very clear because you hear a lot of this in prison. You hear a lot of this in society. Oh, I made mistakes. They made mistakes. This was no fucking mistake. It was my irresponsible decision-making. Yeah. It was a decision and a choice, especially after that, period of 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 time of not being in trouble but it's but i and i wasn't in trouble because i still wasn't at wasn't you know sure doing things but it was you know it was a constant choice not to be out there on the streets and i didn't and like i say i didn't get get i'm not trying to marginalize or minimize but it's important for the people to understand like my last charge that i got in trouble with um you know i was drunk behind the wheel you know what i mean um i now I've you know did a 180 and I'm I'm a huge uh, anti-drunk driving advocate, but mm-hmm. um, you know I would get drunk and I want to jump in my car. You know I always had these custom vehicles and I want to go riding. But at the time, um, I was going to get a pack of hamburger buns. That's why I was behind the wheel because mm-hmm. being you know drunk and not thinking sensibly, I just couldn't deal with not without eating hamburgers so, with hamburgers. So why does somebody need a weapon to go get hamburger buns? Well, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> uh, because I'm I'm a, a starch to a uh, Second Amendment um, advocate. <laughs> no, 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 you know, wow. no, no, what what it what it is is um that paranoia was still there. And I always and it and it's a real it's a it's a fucked up uh kind of cliche for us, but you know, rather be caught with it than without it. Sure. Um because just because you leave a lifestyle don't mean people forgot about you. That's right. And not just that, when you're dealing with what I deal with, you're always paranoia and you're hyper vigilant and you always think something is right around the corner. And I gotta be honest, like I can imagine living with paranoia as a mental health issue. But also living with the very real knowledge that the world is still a very dangerous place for us, even though we've changed. Absolutely. And how those two things can play on each other and, and really make something exacerbate or, or uh, really blow up uh, a situation to be much bigger. than what It, it is. It and I, I was being sarcastic with the, two, with the Second Amendment no, statement. But on the same token, um, realistically, just because you are a felon or, and you've changed your life, don't mean you're not subject to the same dangers that people who aren't right. that that you know um, 
proclamate, you know, that propagate, we need to be armed, we need to sure. be armed, because sure. people, will, <laughs> no matter, well, I still have a family, I've been married for 20 years, mm -hmm. you understand, and I had a family, I have a family, sure. so I'm not, it's not like I was just still single, Do I was doing the family thing, and I, I, I'm sorry, you know. You had mentioned um, that this last <clears throat> prison situation was very different because you had a unique experience at this stage in your life. Oh, yeah, I think the, well, I think what helped uh, give me some of the, the clarity that I have now is that um, until all my years of, of alcohol abuse, substance abuse and, and violence and, and dysfunction, um, until this last prison incarceration, I had never went through any kind of significant uh, drug, alcohol, or even uh, behavioral counseling in my entire life. So you had never had... You know, you're in your late 30s and, you know, doing this prison sentence. And up until this point, with all those experiences as a child, as an adolescent, a young teenager, a young adult, and a middle-aged adult, you never had treatment. Never. The closest I had to treatment was <clears throat> my, my, <laughs> my first DUI um, back in 94. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it was... Uh, DUI slash I ended up in the county for that one too mm -hmm. um, the police actually had to it was a, a chase they chased me I was drunk they they had to chase me well as a result of that they sent they said you know what this guy's got some it has to have some issues even if it's his first DUI something's going on here so of course you know they sent me to um, uh, the one of the uh, the agencies educational class or yeah, to go uh, get an assessment, assessment mm -hmm. uh, agencies is that Nikasa? Yes. Yeah. That was Nick Nikasa here. And um and it was basically just like, okay, look, this is your first offense. Um, you know what? Here, come watch some videos, pay us our money, and you're done. There there was nothing that made that So on one hand, we could talk about people who are overdiagnosed, mm -hmm. right? They're given uh like I mentioned, you know, a, a victim of, of domestic violence is found to unfit labeled uh, diagnosis bipolar mm -hmm. and you know it's a, gone way too far on that and here's another situation where more than likely was some dependency issues going on which even with just mental health somebody should have been with mental health issues somebody should have been talking to you about the effects of drinking with a with a, dis, a dual diagnosed disorder and yet they just kind of gave you like bare minimum standard of introduction yeah. like level 101 alcohol education class when what you needed was probably more intensive well absolutely and, and understanding at that time i didn't have a dual diagnosis of course that sure. was the early 90s but um regardless in my opinion now looking back you know when you have a young guy that's um because i, I did have arrest still at that time mm -hmm. be prior arrest um that not only you know drunk behind the wheel which um, we know the statistics for DUI, so that's not you know mm -hmm. abnormal in mm -hmm. itself. But also, when you take into account that you know there's a guy who the police had to chase him from um, you know the northern suburbs to 95th Street Terminal um, on the south side of Chicago, right. then you there you have there something has to say okay there might be a little something extra. So even if we don't if if by whatever statute says first offense mm -hmm. this is how we deal with it mm -hmm. well there's there's a tremendous sense of criminality involved here so we might, might level up 
or, or at least recommend <laughs> right. something. Sure. And they didn't. You and know? I want to clarify and, for our listeners because <clears throat> you said something that Midwesterners will understand. But what I have found out is that the way we drink and drive in the Midwest <laughs> is actually seen as bizarre and absurd. In, in other to, places to of the other, country. Other places of our country yeah. and other countries. Like, we, we are number one in alcohol dependency findings. We are number and in, in here in Wisconsin, we are number one for OWI arrests. Um, it, it is it's almost seen as a part of the culture. What we are also number one in binge drinking, you know. Mm-hmm. So we and we hear this uh, shock and awe from people from from places like Germany, bigger cities like California oh, yeah. or New York. They're like, you guys drink how much? And it's almost like any special occasion here in the in the Midwest. It's really a special occasion to drink. It's so Fourth of July, birthdays, kids parties, you know, funerals. Like we get together to drink out here. That's what we do. Oh yeah, I remember. Um, I've been. <clears throat> I was in England um, years back, and we were talking about. And the subject came up about drinking and driving, because uh, well, of course we were talking about the way people drive. Period. Because sure. it's it's different. I can't imagine you in England you, not sticking out, Chris. <laughs> I, I I do. I did. I did. Um, but um. You got a lowrider cholo guy in England. <laughs> but then, you know, um, and when we, I was talking about drink, about, you know, drinking and driving, you mm-hmm. know, man, you know, just general conversation, you know, because you're on opposite sides of the road. And I'm like, if I was drunk, man, this would be really fucked up. <laughs> and they're like, you, what do you mean get behind the wheel and drink? You know, yeah, you know, the culture is very you different. Know, you know, you know. All right. Like, so I, I kind of got about um probably got about 15 minutes left and i think one of probably for me i think that we're moving into one of the more important aspects of why we're even talking about this and i kind of want you to to tune these listeners into like you know give them something to think about what's it like living with all of this post prison you know you're you're deep into years now of change you know like you're you you have a job you, like you said you you're married you're 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 doing what you can to to correct your course in life but what's it like living with the effects of dependency what's it like living with the effects of having been violent and having been the victim of violence mm-hmm. and having been the victim of watching violence right we oh, we yeah. we spent a lot of time <clears throat> talking about urban warfare right the the effects of of living in these urban areas um, that are, are ridden with murders and assaults and, and shootings and all types of violence. Um, you know, what's, what's it like today living post that era? Um, well, you know, this is a, there's a rant that I've gotten on numerous times. Um, Sammy knows, you know, I, I've worked, with the, worked for and with the military um, in, the, in, my, in my past. So um, I deal with a lot of people in the military. Or I have a lot of friends in the military. Well, <clears throat> um, when you bring up urban warfare, that's this is what's bringing me to this. Um, we have a lot of recognition that's coming out um, late and and, du- and duly and welcomed, and and I'm glad we have had uh, a lot of the PTSD, TBI, etc. Um, recognition because we know, you know, coming from the Vietnam era forth, there wasn't very much of that, you know, and uh, and those guys kind of got tossed under the rug, but. Um, the problem is when I hear a lot of, uh, of, uh, of talking points in regards to, uh, PTSD and the effects of violence, 
um, upon in the military and things. And people are, are readily to accept that and say, yeah, you know, we need to do more or these experiences um, are significant there's and they're relevant. There's compassion. Yeah. But well, a lot of people don't think to themselves is that, you know, um, urban warfare, you know, um, that, that, that especially the particularly the minority community in, in inner cities, um, have been raging for generations long before global war and terror uh, deployments. You understand? Mm -hmm. And uh, the unfortunate thing is a lot of these residents, they don't get to come back to, um, you know, docile, mundane, you know, small towns and docile suburbs and then say, these people don't get me. Um, and, and this is not a, a ridicule or a marginalization because a lot of the, I consider these guys my brothers too. But, um, but, Unfortunately, these kids grow up in these environments, seeing this violence, um, mothers bearing sons, siblings bearing siblings, people being shot, et cetera, et cetera. And it's become such a normality that it's kind of like, well, that's just what happens here. You guys should be able to deal with this. Mm -hmm. there, there's there's no campaigns. It's seen dealing, as a moral issue yeah, for us. There, right? There's, you know, and it's like, OK, you don't like it, then just move. Right. <laughs> you that's, know what I mean? Or you that's know? that's just the consequence of the way you live. Get over it. Well, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like you guys, guys, you know, volunteered to stay in these neighborhoods or raise your kids here or join gangs. Well, in the same sense, you this is a volunteer, very voluntary military, meaning you volunteer knowing that the, the potential to, for you going to war is there. So if I was to say something to the effect of, OK, you got PTSD, you got TBI or whatever, or you look like RoboCop, then, um, hey, that was a, a volunteer choice. Get over it. I would never say that. Right. And um, unfortunately, we're living in an era now where people w won't say that. Right. But it's just absurd as telling a mother who's just buried her child, um, you know, and sometimes second and third children. Sure. Hey, well, then you shouldn't have you shouldn't have raised them in this neighborhood. You shouldn't have let them become gangbangers sure. because that's what you hear. Right. You know, um, and not let's not. And we can take it off of that aspect because a lot of people say, well, gang members incarcerated, if you get PTSD, that's not that's not considered valorous or heroic. That's considered adverse so you got what you you deserve part of your, your but let's talk right? about the people who live in these communities that didn't deserve this children that grow up being abused in the home um, um, I, I know women that have been raped multiple times living in these communities where they're full of predators mm -hmm. you know what I mean you know let's talk about domestic violence that's though that is astronomical sure. you know what I mean um, the same goes for these people that are marginalized. We live right down the street from and, a place called Chirac right now, which yeah. is experiencing, has been experiencing. And why do they, and why did it get that moniker? Mm -hmm. It got the moniker Chirac just not because some hip hoppers decided this would be cool. It got that moniker because more people were being killed in the street in Chicago than, than um, war, <laughs> than the casualties over in Iraq and Afghanistan. You understand? Sure. That should yeah. be a problem for people. But it should not be just a problem because Chicago is the is the scapegoat now. Because you, what you forget is that we also have places like Detroit and Milwaukee and New Orleans and Baltimore, you know, that are all suffering LA. the same um, same yeah. amount of violence um, um, for generations and and nothing's being done. But so, when you talk to so to a lot, when I talk to a lot of my buddies or or I hear um, these conversations, if you listen to what they're describing with what they go through mm -hmm. with PTSD. If you take the aspect that they that they were deployed away, it's the and, and you just put these conversations together, 
It's the exact same sure. conversations that you'd have with someone who grew up in Chicago right. public housing in the 90s. Right. You get what I mean? Sure. It's the same conversation you, you'd have, the same symptoms you're seeing exhibited from people who live in Inglewood or Garfield Park or Little Village or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so what's it like for you today, Chris, to be living post-era? Well, it is. I mean, I have the, the all the symptoms of PTSD. You know, um, those those experiences. Um, for our listeners who don't know what some of those might be, give us like three or four of those. What are those symptoms um, for you? Uh, hypervigilance is a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, things that that you kind of retrograde back into experience where you might see something um, or hear something. If I hear a loud noise, you know, like people talk about Fourth of July. I don't have a problem with the 4th of July, but when someone, if I'm not ready for someone setting off one of them M80s or something, mm-hmm. dude, you know what I mean? You know, It's like reliving the Yeah, I'm like years. Arnold, you know, get yeah. down now, do it now, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and but fucking um, all those, those reactionary hypervigilance um, always, you know, I, I, I sit in the back, you know, I can't sit nowhere without mm-hmm. seeing the door mm-hmm. because something inside of me says, you never know. I'm not worried about ISIS running through the door. You know what I mean? I'm wor- I'm worried about a fellow American running through the door mm-hmm. and pulling some shit. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about someone who just happened to see me and be like, "I remember this motherfucker." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because you know, because it's happened. Right. You know, over the course, not recently, but you, it's always in your mind. What talk about what it's like trying not to be violent anymore? Did, or is that even a struggle? Oh yeah, it's 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 a struggle. Um, I had it. You know, a, an incident we were talking about. Um, where uh, we had Gurney Mills Shopping Center, northern suburbs, right outside of Waukegan. Um, Mega Mall, and they drive, people drive crazy. Um, and I was taking my mom out there uh, for lunch at Portillo's, and uh, an individual we had to get over, they wouldn't let us get in. Uh, so I sped up, jumped in front of him to make this turn. Well, I guess he decided, hey, I'm not going to let this go. He had his wife and kids in the car with him. So he comes, he's flicking me off. I got my mom next to me. First, I'm like, okay, whatever. Then the dude tries to cut me off. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, and I, I mean, like, cut me off, like, to stop me, like, to, mm-hmm. to say, well, you know, for us, that's a trigger, dude. Because back in the day, you cut somebody off or they cut you off, you know what's, you know what's going down. It's about man. to go down. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a life or death situation. Yeah, and just like that, you, you, it's like that switch happens and you don't even, and before you know it, like I say, um, I spun around him and now I'm trying to cut him off and not let him leave. And my mother's going hysterical. She's going crazy. Um, and, and like, I'm just in the zone, dude. And so next thing you know, uh, my mom tells me, um, she screams, she's trying to get out the door, but she can't open cause the, the car's in motion. It locks the door. And she's like, I'm going to jump out. I'm jumping out of the car. Let me out right now. And for whatever reason that it, that brought me back because I remember looking at her and I say, where the fuck are you going to go? Hmm. Well, that's my mom. And some people be like, that fucking piece of shit. You no, can't turn it off. No, you can't turn that off. There's not a life switch, you know. But that brought me back because in that moment, I real, something inside me realized, you just, you're talking, this is your mom. Hmm. You see? Sure. You know? But then what's funny is, it switched from me, tr- me wanting to, to physically harm this person to... Um, I'm chasing him down now because I feel the need to, to explain to him 
what could have happened and why he shouldn't do this to anyone else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. You know, and I was I wanted to genuinely explain to him, and this is probably just just m- the morbidity of of this shit that. I wanted to stop him to say, look, dude, look at your wife and look at your kids. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that you're going to pull this on somebody that's not going to going to be brought back. And they're going to you're going to end up going to the funeral of your wife and kids starting shit with people you don't know. Mm-hmm. So, of course, my mom was hysterical over that, too, because she's like, why can't you just let it go? You don't need to tell him nothing. And in my, my mind, whacked out mine. I'm like, yeah, I have to tell him that. You know what I mean? Why? 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 Why did I need to let him? Why couldn't I let him flick me off and just have his, let him feel like a man and roll out? Why? Why can't we do? Why can't I do that? Sure. And and this is a, a man in his forties. I'm in my forties now. You see, you know. Yeah. But that still triggers you, you know. And so violence, yeah, criminality still, is still there. You know, I, I could sit here and try to act like if like okay, yeah, I've done it. I've made it. You know what I mean? But no, you know, um, you know, I, I still go into places and even my workplace, you know, if I, you know, it, it's just crazy. I'm not going to get into all of that. But yeah. but, you know, what I'm trying to say here is that you can't turn this on and off like a light switch in nine chances out of ten. If you truly are suffering from this, and this is whether it's a life of criminality, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's um, mental illness, you may suffer the residual effects of this and have to. Um, take an active, a proactive approach to maintaining yourself for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. You know? And I think that's, a, it's, that's an important um, takeaway because I think sometimes people think that the, that the change takes a momentary amount of effort, whether that's a year, two years, a few weeks, whatever. But really, the amount of energy we have to expend to maintain a position that we we choose to take here is daily and ongoing you know the mm-hmm. and i would argue that with our experiences the amount of energy it takes just to be nonviolent is probably exponentially more than someone who doesn't have a, a tendency or history of having been mm-hmm. violent or having lived with these long-term uh traumatic experiences right it's for us to tie our shoe in the morning with all this trauma, with mental health issues that we're facing with, with the criminal kind of ingrained personality in us, takes more energy to do that than the person who, who maybe just is living more or less what we would consider a, a normal life in a sense, right? And yeah, it's but we're doing it. But the problem is that oftentimes we're expected to do it with little to no understanding of how difficult that real undertaking truly mm-hmm. is for us you know and to maintain and have a lot of respect for for your struggle chris and for you sharing that struggle with us man you know if there's any takeaway from here as we get ready to wrap up um what do you want our listeners to think about what do you want them to to take away from all of this man um well from the ass from in for people on the outside looking in and this is difficult to do because I think we're all guilty of this in some sense is the judge, you know, don't be so judgmental. Um, there's a, a good quote that says, uh, and we've all seen it on the millions of memes. Um, you know, everyone is, is in, you know, in a struggle that you don't know, Sure. you know, you don't know what they're struggling with. So, um, remember that the people you meet, um, they may be struggling with this or substance abuse or domestic violence or whatever it may be. And you just don't know. We just think they're just pricks or they're just antisocial. 
and they don't. And sometimes the biggest help to people is someone to is to feel accepted, especially mm-hmm. when you're dealing with what we deal with. The feeling of acceptance and camaraderie. That's why we always tell people don't isolate. Um, is is just I, to me a, a big portion of helping people heal. That support base and because that's what makes you feel normal mm-hmm. because people are accepting you and they're bringing you in. Um, also, for people who are suffering with this, um, just understand that that the problem that, that what people view as as abnormal, abnormal, you are actually normal for all the shit you've been through. Sure. <laughs> you know, and, and this that may be morbid, but you are. You know, it's impossible to think someone's been through multiple rapes or have seen multiple um, murders or have to murder or been through multiple prison experiences or or, or um, you know combat deployments, whatever it may be. And think that you're gonna be norm that you're gonna come out of that shit normal. Mm-hmm. If you don't, then then that's a mental, in my opinion, a mental issue in itself. Sure, there, there might be something going on even worse than those experiences if that doesn't affect you at all. Right. Um, Denial comes in all shapes. And oh, it, it does, and and probably most of all, um, you know, medication is 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 a, a good key. Um, counseling groups, but uh, but also getting yourself involved in something that can get you out of your own head. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that be um, going out into nature, whether that be um, art, whether that be, you know, whatever your thing is, sometimes it's work, motorcycling, whatever it is, find something and don't lose that, um, that don't get disinterested and pull yourself back away from those things. In fact, engage them even more um, to get yourself, keep yourself out of, out of your own head. I mean, the way I do that is, you know, I, I've been working security for a long time. I know a lot of people might say this crazy fuck why, why the, but I've been a you know I've been a bouncer for quite quite some years. You know, and um, and and not just in the bouncer in other uh, aspects of that. And um, when I'm doing that, um, it takes me out of my head, and I feel more calm in that those in when I'm in a nightclub watching, or I'm in some other situation, um, than I am because I love doing it. Um, so find something you really love, you know, for me, cars too, low riding, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, well, Chris, you're quite, stay you're proactive. quite the writer too. You know what I mean? You, you like to write your, you like to share a lot of your oh, perspectives. Yeah. I, I express myself a lot better on Man. paper than I do <laughs> verbally. Um, I mean, you know, I stumble around, I get a lot of brain farts and I stumble around um, and I try to keep my head where I need to go. So I stumble around when I'm talking, but, um, I write. I love to write. I love to read and I love to write. I'm very articulate when I'm, I'm writing and, and reading. So, yeah. Well, Chris, I want to say, man, thank you for taking what I would call a, a courageous journey here with me, man. And, you know, I, I don't, I've listened to a number of podcasts over the course of my career and life. And I don't know that I've really heard one where, where people just really just talk about it at face value what it's like being us, you know, and, and living with these things and everything we're trying to do. Um, we're not, and for the listeners, you know, this is not about minimizing a lifestyle or the effects of a lifestyle that we've chose. I think to Chris's point, it's better to understand what's behind behavior than to judge or label that behavior. That understanding can lead to possible solutions, uh, repair and recovery and change rarely is anyone that I know of, I, I'm going to say never have I known anyone to be so judged that they decided to get their life together. Mm. But what I have heard is people feeling understood, being validated. Um, and you know, 
you you touched on it. You're not trying to escape any sort of accountability for your actions. Right. I will say from a social justice point as a social worker that while you're accountable for your actions, there are a lot of social justice issues in your story that also had an effect on you that also helped shape you into the person uh, in some way that helped facilitate what I would say your breakdown. You oh, know? no doubt. No you know? doubt. And so while we personally take accountability for our actions as a social worker, I also look at the system and say the system has to change to help minimize the effects of these things and to be, I think, to be efficient and qualified and skilled at how we get involved in people's lives. Um, so I think with Chris's point, my point is it's better to understand behavior than it is to judge behavior. No one is better served by shame and guilt. And whether you're doling it out and expect someone to swallow it, and a lot of times for, for those of us who have been criminals or violent in our past, shame and guilt is not the same thing as remorse. Um, they come from two different places and they have two different effects. I think we're better served when we really do start to analyze root causes of our behaviors and behaviors of others and then trying to find the best compassionate, empathic uh, strategy to help others and ourselves when we're coming out of this. This has been um, a, a great show. Thank you, Chris, again. Um, Thank you, Bill. Yeah, for sure. And uh, this is Sammy Rangel, the life technician. Until next time.